Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to just make a couple of... uh, Not really announcements, celebrations really. This has been uh, an incredible weekend, uh, several days actually. It's Conclave weekend, so our leadership training is ongoing. It actually starts on Wednesday before the weekend and goes through the weekend. Uh, Friday night, we had our Conclave gathering where all of our leaders gathered. And then uh, tonight, our community group leaders will be trained as well. I want to say thank you to you who serve in positions of leadership Uh, Our church is so blessed by your investment, and I want to thank you, all of you who serve in every capacity uh, among our church. What a blessing, and we're going to talk about that today. Aren't you thankful for our worship team? Yes, uh, what a blessing they are for us. I just want to say this. So often we see them in front of us and we think, wow, they just showed up like we did and did that. But when you see somebody on stage in front of you, it represents somewhere between six to eight hours of investment just that week. Not, Not total, just for that week. And so don't mistake that. As a matter of fact, if you really want to encourage them, just sing as loud as you can. And I mean, just like overrun them with your singing and they'll sing louder back at you, I assure you. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for the new year. I'm thankful for the opportunity to gather. And I wanna talk about that today. Ephesians chapter one, I'm gonna read verses one through seven and 11 through 16 before we continue. Ephesians four, beginning in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now jump down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Last week, I started the first half of this short series entitled Building Back Together by introducing to you from Psalm chapter 1, the path of Christian maturity. 
And today, I want to complete this series by looking today at the people of Christian maturity. The path, and now the people. Now, let me set the stage, if I may, briefly before I move into the body of the message today in the text, simply by saying three things. I want to chart our course today, not just for today, but for moving ahead from today throughout the years. And to chart our course, I want to set our eyes on Jesus, the Word. That's much of what we did last week when we talked about uh, um, the, the, the path of Christian maturity. We talked about how we do not uh, walk in the way of, of the wicked. We do not stand in the way of sinners. We do not sit in the seat of scoffers, but our delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon His law, we meditate day and night. So the Word is central to the pathway towards our maturity And the reason is because it is through the word of God that we set our eyes upon Jesus. The more chaotic the world becomes, do I have your attention? The more singular our focus on God's word must be as the source from which we draw our strength. The, co- the key to our growth and maturity is only found in focusing on Jesus. That's why if you lifted your eyes before you walked through the door, you saw two words, more Jesus. That's our aim. That's our aim every time we gather. Knowing all the fullness of his power, of his grace and truth is with us and he is working even now among us. I want to chart our course to set our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, I want to set our perspective to live ready. Set our perspective to live ready for the day of the master's return. Jesus teaches in Matthew 25 across several parables that Christians are to live ready for his return at all times. Not to waiting to when the day comes, for we do not know when it comes, but to live ready every moment for that day. And so for us as Christians, we need not be asking, will God's judgment come to the world for all that is taking place? The already given answer, not presumed nor assumed, but given answer is yes, he absolutely will. We we need not ask the question, is God judging the world right now? The absolute already given answer is yes, he absolutely is. He may be doing it passively as Romans 1 teaches us where he just simply gives people over to the depravity of their lives and the darkness of their mind to let them have what they ask for. To lighten his hand of mercy and and remove his presence and just let them slide into the abyss. Or it may be actively where he intervenes to judge. This we do not know. It's not ours to know. We should, though, lament the wickedness and the violence of the world and all the while pray for God's mercy upon every person. Listen, friends, there's not an enemy that you may identify. There's not a person that you nor they towards you may loathe and hate you more that shouldn't be at the top of our prayer list for God's mercy. You don't know what God wants to do in their life. And you don't know what God wants to do in your life fully. Therefore, we should pray for his hand of mercy and surely upon our country and upon all of those in it that he would use us to bring the goodness and the grace of God to every person by turning their hearts from sin and to him. 
We shouldn't be asking the question, will God deliver us, his people, from the evil of our day? We've already answered that question. We answered it last week in Psalm 1. Verse 6 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And we know this, he knows, he sees, he cares, he hears, he is working. Period. Done. This we know. This is a foundation from which we live our life. And so we need not ask us, but listen, he will, but likely he won't in the way that we think or that we ask him to. Why? Because if you just flip a few pages later, Psalm 23 tells us that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, we go to God and go, God, get me out of here. And God said, I got something better. How about I go with you through here? So here's what we can know, friends, regardless of what God does and how he does it, he is with us. And that's more important than anything else that we may come to know about the world in which we live. Do not focus on the darkness of death valley. Remember the comfort of the shepherd's rod and staff who is with you and working. I want to chart our course to set our eyes on Jesus. I want to set our perspective to live ready regardless of what the days bring. And thirdly, I want to clarify our focus. You see, when the questions swirl and uncertainty abounds, there is a greater necessity for the clarity of our focus and the critical nature of it. And listen to 1 Peter 1.13 when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In other words, not being inebriated by anything be it substance or ideology don't get drunk but set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ we will clear our focus today by resetting any measure of straying or swaying that we have done And so today I invite you to prepare your mind and set your hope fully on the grace of God in Jesus Christ and his work. Because I want you to walk away with this. Jesus who is the conquering king. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, verses 8 through 10. The conquering king measures out his grace so all his followers measure up like him as overcomers. Jesus, he's the king. And he is the one measuring out his grace so all who believe in him will measure up like him as overcomers. That's where I want to set your focus today. I want to look at five characteristics that mark the people of Christian maturity. Five characteristics that mark the people of Christian maturity. And then after I set forth these five characteristics, I'm going to lay out some counsel and some direction for you for the days, weeks, months to come. Characteristic number one of the people of Christian maturity is our common aim our common aim, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You see, these are set forth by Paul in Ephesians 4 based on the truth that he's taught in Ephesians 1 through 3, the foundational understanding of who God is and why he is. And you go, yeah, but did Paul understand our day? No, but God did. And God does. And that's the point. And our common aim hasn't changed. It doesn't matter what changes around us, who we are and why we are. 
remains the same. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so Paul begins by urging Christians to walk in this way that is in accordance to our calling. You say, how do we do that? Well, Luke defines our calling in chapter 9, verse 23 in this way. If any man would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so we have a very concise understanding of what our calling is. And now, how is it that we walk in a manner worthy of that calling? Well, God calls on the Christian life for us to count ourselves dead to sin and dead to self and alive unto God through Jesus Christ so that we walk by faith in accordance and in obedience to his commands that are in his word. And the only way we will do this is if we die to me so he can live more in me. He gives us some descriptors that outline this manner of living in the call of our salvation. He says, first of all, in all humility and gentleness. These characterize the person that are being ruled by King Jesus. And I can tell you this, when the rule of Jesus begins to wane, that gentleness begins to move away and humility begins to be difficult to be found. You see, the right manner for the Christian to live is the way that Jesus lived when he was among us, humbly and gentle. And the way that we live demonstrates how it is that Jesus has lived to love us. Nobody deserved for Jesus to come with a hammer fist more than any individual who was dead in their sins and trespasses. And yet he came with the shepherd's staff to save us. And to redeem us. And so the way that we live demonstrates how we believe Jesus lived and where it is that we draw our strength from Him for life. Two other characteristics that He uses to qualify this this aim of the way that we live is that He was patient, and, and we should be patient and bearing with one another in love. Patient and bearing with one another in love. In other words, as our common aim together is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, it's going to demand that we are patient with one another and bearing with one another in love. Because this characterizes the person who is ruled by Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I seldom test the limits of my own patience. I don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, you're driving me nuts. You're on my last nerve. And Kristen says, who are you talking to? How many times have you found yourself doing that when you're thinking in the back of your mind, that individual is driving me nuts. You see, it is impossible to test your patience alone. Why? Why? Because you've got the perfect rationale every time for why it's acceptable. But we've all been tested at times when our patience has found its limits and then things have gone beyond those limits, right? And this is good and this is right. And it is especially right among the local church. That's why he says patience bearing with one another in love Because those two have to go together. What do you do when you find that I'm not patient with you anymore? Okay, when your patience ends, now it's time to bear with one another in love. 
And people that don't test your patience won't ever help you grow in bearing with one another in love. And people that you find it easiest to bear with them in love seldom ever test your patience. You see what I'm getting at here? Our growth and maturity cannot come until we've been pressed to new limits. And we are pressed to new limits when that which comes to us, that which is around us, pushes us beyond the old limit. We need others to reveal where and when and in what ways we need to let go of our demands, our comforts, our conveniences, and to learn to put others first. This is our common aim. Our common aim is that we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And let me, I'll get to the unity part in just a moment, but I want to deal with this word eager for just a moment. Here's what I want us to look at. The eagerness of each person for this. Not just the acceptance. Okay, all right, I'll deal with you if I have to. If that's what God tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up with you. Maybe everybody's putting up with you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that mirror might start talking back. It's not just acceptance or willingness, friends. It's, it, it's a desire. Lord, I, I found the end of myself. Good scripture teaches that that's where God can really begin to work in you. And, and, and when patience is gone and, and we have to bear with one another in love, we know that we, we are eager for this, that, that our desire for unity among people that, that I don't know as well and some I know better, that we are eager to maintain the unity, that when we come together, we're not eager to bring our agenda. We're eager for God's agenda. That we're not eager for what we have to say to others. We are eager for what God has to say to us. Because we are eager to maintain the unity among fellow believers. You see, two important points about this first characteristic. They teach us that this must be our common aim to walk worthy of our calling. Of our calling. It's the goal that is set before us, not just one goal that we should entertain. And it's also impossible to live out our faith isolated from people. For the importance of Christians living in a manner worthy of our calling reminds us we are part of a, of a body that is defined by one common aim. One common aim. The second characteristic though immediately follows is the priority of unity. The priority of unity, it's the Spirit's work for our common bond. Paul makes this clear that unity is a priority for the church. It is our common bond that holds us together. But here's the most important thing about unity. It's not our common consensus. It's not what we get together and, and come up with. It is what the Spirit does among us while we are together. While we are together, you see, if we all get together and decide, okay, we got to get united, then what's going to happen there is if we're able to achieve it, which I am not hopeful of that. I'll just be honest. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that on any given day. But if best we did, all we would do would be to come to terms. And come to terms would simply mean that we had equal tension pulling against so that we could hold it all together in one place. That is not Christian unity. That is not spiritual unity. But spiritual unity is when we bring all of who we are together with all of the others that are in the house. And we ask God, you take the pull of our tensions and you bring the peace of your presence to all of them. 
and you prevail. You see, unity is the spirit of God's work. And when people, when God's people walk worthy together, the Holy Spirit begins to produce among them a new reality. We become one in heart. We become one in mind. We become one in will. So that we give ourselves to the work of God that is among us. When Christians walk worthy together, the Holy Spirit works among them to accomplish far more than they could ever do individually or cumulatively. The third characteristic is the mark of grace. What does verse 7 say? But that Jesus distinctively marks every person with his grace in order to serve. You see, through our calling in Jesus Christ comes his distinguishing mark on our lives. And what is his mark? The grace of God. What is grace? It's God's forgiveness and cleansing from sin and our power to walk as he command. So often we reduce and diminish and misconstrue grace to be some kind of get out of sin jail free card. So we talk about God's grace when we address our sin and go, ah, yeah, I'm so bad here. I I failed miserably here and, and I did wrong and I need God's grace. And friends, that's right and true. We do. But grace pulls us out of the muck and the mire and the darkness of ourself and places us into the righteousness of Jesus Christ to walk in a way by which he presents to us by his word, by his command. You see, grace is never just to rationalize the excuse or the overlooking of sin. And surely grace is never less than forgiveness nor cleansing. And it's never the accommodation of, it is so much more than any of this. It is God's power to live and to serve one another. Listen, friends, no one is unimportant in the congregation. Stay with me here. Because you may be tempted to think incorrectly about this in one of two ways. That as you look around the room, you think you need some more than you need the others. Or vice versa. And if sin's really taking hold, you'll think that the gifts or the ministry of one is not as significant or important to you as the other. Nothing could be further from the truth. But let me flip that coin and say another truth to you. You are of no lesser value to others in your service as well. And that's what we all need to hear. Your life has been marked with the power and the strength of Jesus Christ by his grace to serve others. That's God's design and plan for you. The fourth characteristic is the participation by all. If all have been marked with grace from Jesus and he has measured it out to them, as verse seven says, there's a reason for that. And we find that reason later in verses 14 and 15 and 16 when it says, when each part is working together in the way that it is intended to work. All scripture, friends, according to scripture, teaches that the Christian life is revealed by the way that one identifies with in order to actively minister among for all in the local church. 
Jesus uniquely gifted each person with grace in order to serve one another. Therefore, all must participate for each one to grow and to grow up. Every person is dependent on it. Some are more directly dependent upon your ministry than others, but none are independent of it. All must participate for each one to grow and grow up. Because the grace of God is on every person. It's essential for growth, for health, and for spiritual safeguarding of all. And listen, I I get this as a pastor. I I hear you when you say, Pastor, I need to rest. Pastor, I need to heal. Pastor, I need to wait. There are times and seasons for that. I I will not argue with that. You should not make that decision in isolation or alone. Do we have needs? Yes, but we're not going to dump them on you. We want to listen to you, help you, and encourage you. And then find a time, find a way at some point, maybe known or unknown, when you can participate for the good of all. The fifth distinction is the centrality of the gospel, verses 15 and 16. It is the gospel that fuels our growth. It is the gospel that fuels our strength. It is the gospel that fuels our ministry. It is the gospel that fuels our development. You know what's not there? personality neither mine nor any individuals you see in front of you nor the individuals that you have immediately around you nor any other that may be close to you it is the gospel that fuels our growth strength ministry and development you see it is the centering dialogue by which all things are sustained, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And building on the first four characteristics that we've just talked about, what is it when we've all gotten together, we understand to have that common aim, and we all begin to participate, what do we need to be about? Rather, speaking the truth in love, exalting Christ among all. And it's only possible as the first four are embraced and practiced. But when it's done, Christ begins to come to the forefront of all of who we are and what we do. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That means identifying them with the triune God. And then he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. There it is. Speaking the truth in love. As Jesus' teachings are shared with one another in the church, the Spirit brings greater work through the whole congregation. And as the Word of God permeates to each person, it accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it forth, the purpose for which Jesus died to save. Friends, these are the five characteristics of the people of maturity, a common aim, the priority of unity, the mark of grace, the participation by all, and the centrality of the gospel it's critical for us. And you, you might say, okay, you're, you're preaching on the church today, but you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, right? I mean, you know, we got some big issues that we've got to address here. Yes, yes, as a matter of fact, I, I've been embroiled in the midst of those throughout the week. But listen, friends, it doesn't matter what happens out there if what's transpiring in here is not centered where it must be in order to know how to live there. Jesus has already conquered all of that. And the only way you're going to overcome it is in him. That's what I need you to hear. You know, Christian history records 
that when martyrs of the faith were stoned, when they were crucified, when they were impaled, burned at the stake, subjected to countless other forms of wickedness, the church didn't run and hide. But rather they gathered to pray and to praise so that when martyrs shed their blood, breathed their last, the last sounds they would hear would be their Christian brothers and sisters praying, singing praise to God. If this season's going to teach us anything, it will press us so deeply into the priority of the church gathered. Wisely, yes. With understanding and grace to one another, absolutely. But nonetheless, that priority. Jesus said this in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What is Jesus saying? John records the words of Jesus that Jesus is saying, your overcoming and the peace of your life, regardless of what revolves around you, will be found in me. And then as an old man, clearly close to his own death at the hands of evil people and wickedness in the world, the Apostle John writes, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? That old man heard the resonation of Jesus in his mind that he had already recorded in his gospel. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that's the one that overcomes the world. Why? Because Jesus has already overcome. And so friends, I'll tell you, when you get in this room and when you're around your church, you sing with all your might. There's somebody who likely is dying inside that needs to hear the sound of their brother or sister in Christ appealing to the gospel to the grace of God for their life, to tell them that Jesus, the conquering king, measures out his grace so all his followers measure up like him as overcomers. Don't think it's insignificant. Don't think it's unimportant. It's critical. And even more in the days in which we find ourselves. And so I want to address us as a church for the next few minutes. It's a series called Building Back Together. And I want to answer some questions for those of you who've been with us a long time and for those of you maybe who just showed up today. How is it that we will build back together? Well, today I want to call us back to the people of God. I want to call us back to be together, to those whom God has ordained for your life, to be made more like his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, there's not a force, there's not a power in the world, in the heavenlies or in the universe or otherwise that can stop the work of God in our life. So what do I mean by calling us back? First of all, I recognize we are still in the reality of a pandemic and appropriate measures should be taken I also recognize how severe the pressure has been and is on so many these days. 
We're continuing to offer the live feed into uh, our multi-purpose room where those who uh, are higher risk can come, can remain in masks, can be more distanced. Masks are welcome. Not only there, everywhere. You see, friends, I also recognize, though, that, that the, the pressure that you are under, whether it be from school, from work, from just in society in general, now they got people walking around with cameras to, to be tattletales publicly on people that aren't doing what they ought to be doing or whatever. I, I mean, it's gotten to be ridiculous. I get it. Fears, the threats, the demands to conform come from countless angles. But here's what I will say to you. We will do everything within our power to never be a source of pressure upon you. And here's what I mean by that. We will respect you and we will trust your decision for you, for your family, and to honor one another. We, we risk things every week when we come together. And this season just adds to that list. We will continue to serve, to encourage you, to strengthen you in the Lord, and to do everything we can to reach out to you when you can't be in close proximity to us. Some people ask, why don't you do a live feed of the services? We can't. It's impossible for us to get enough internet to do Facebook Live. That's why we don't. And trust me, the people who could supply it know my name. It's on a list. It's probably not their nice list. We're still working to terms on that. And we will work in this way to minister so that when you can and when you do return, you'll find a welcome celebration to greet you. You'll find a family who has missed your presence and who is thrilled at your return. And we'll do not do everything right. We've already proven that more than one time. But we'll do all we can to minister to you in Jesus' name. So what are we doing? Let me tell you what we're doing as leadership. We are making preparation for full ministry moving forward. And as we move deeper into this year and as the hope of, of vaccines and things of that nature that can quell the, the virus overall, as all of those things continue to become a bigger presence, we are making every preparation for our full ministry schedule to be relaunched and a present. We're beginning that even today with children's classes starting back with midweek discipleship coming back into spring, uh, into, uh, starting again. And as we move into the spring and early summer, we are anticipating a full active engagement in the summer. We're pushing, pushing, pushing as hard as we can with all of our plans and preps and implementation. And as we are able, we will begin to launch them and you'll hear about those things. If we need, we will make adjustments as we have to. Pray for us in this because I really want us to be together. And I pray that we can be and that you will be. And so to that end, I offer five priorities of counsel and direction for each one of us. In this season that still feels awkward in so many ways, here's what I want you to prioritize each one of us 
for us to continue to be the people of Christian maturity, the people of God for one another. Number one, pursue deeper immersion in the word. Spend more time in the study, in the meditation, and the memorization instead of more time in other books, in more books, in news feeds, in threads, in groups, whatever it may be. Yes, put a clock on it and figure out where you're spending more time and make sure that it is immersion in the word. If you need help with this, we will help you develop a plan for this. We're doing this among our leadership. We're asking you to do it as well. Number two, prioritize local over accessible. You ready? Local over accessible. Here's what I mean by this. If you feed from many troughs, you'll not commit to any. Everything that you get out there may be better. I, I won't argue with you about that. I know I can give you plenty of names that are, but none of it will be better for you. That's what I'm saying in this message today. That's what God is saying to us in Ephesians 4. It may be better, but it won't be better for you. You may not hear all that you want to hear when you gather with us, but God says that you'll hear all you need to hear. And you'll have it ministered to you in a way that is for you because he is working for you through those that are around you. Prioritize local over accessible Commit, thirdly, to centralized over-partitioned community. You see, we have a tendency to partition, P-A-R, not P-E-T, partition our life according to the needs and to approach our Christian life in the same way. So we read the Bible here with one group, we study with another, we fellowship with another, and, and, and socialize with another, and then we attend service with still another. And friends, I'm not saying that Christianity doesn't exist outside the realm of LifePoint Church. I've never said that. But the responsibility and accountability for those who are LifePoint Church, it does not exist for you out there. That's what I am saying about this. I want you to imagine the potency of one place, yea, one people, where you read, studied, sat under the word, and that was the same place where you discussed, where you listened, where you celebrated, where you shared, and where you confessed the word to one another. In that place, you would find that those who listen could respond with an affirmation and with an encouragement for you. As well, in response to the struggles that you offered and the sin struggles that you had, that you shared, others could ask questions for you that were actually beneficial to you. Like, why did this happen? Do you see a pattern in your life? What are you going through? What are you thinking? What are you experiencing when that temptation arises? Have you thought about that? How can we help you? How can we pray for you? How can we minister to you? And when asked, here's, the, here's the, the, the miraculous part of it. When you get asked those kinds of hard questions in the face of your own struggles, because you knew them and you trusted them because they knew you, you actually listened to what they said to you and received it. And this is personal testimony. Sometimes you receive it when you don't even agree with it. But because of what you understand God is doing through their life for you, it's not about them, it's about Him. And you submit yourself to their counsel to watch God work through them. 
I'm not telling you what you ought to do there. I actually am. But I'm telling you that because that's what I do. And I usually agree. I usually already know it before they say it. They're just affirming it. You see, friends, God's word comes to us through relationship with him. It should be digested by us in as much the same way as possible. The local church is a fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just a place. It is a people. You see, all too common, we make the mistake that we get too little Bible and too much immersion in other things. When what we need is more Jesus. Therefore, community that is intentional to increase, expand, and maximize the Bible that you've had input to full impact is most beneficial. But when you partition your life by multifaceted participation, when you don't have to listen to this talking head because you've gone and found the best there is, when you don't get the preference of what you would like to have when you come into a worship gathering, but you found it elsewhere, so you can ignore it or check out a little more on it here, you, you neglect, yea, even reject the very source relationships that God has established through which you are to grow and mature by his design. The more partitioned your life the more self becomes central, the more sin gets managed, and God becomes more difficult to hear, to believe and trust. He begins to seem less reliable, yea, even less necessary for you. The partition life ends up isolated, exposed, and easy picking for the enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the more centralized your community for the Christian life, the more multifaceted your immersion in, your reception to, your accountability for, and the application of the word for faithful obedience becomes. You see, salvation, according to Galatians 4, 9, is to know, and listen, to be known by God. Therefore, your sanctification should parallel that. That you know the people you're entrusting your life to and you are known by them. I know it's dangerous, it's risky. Fourth, contact a person for ministry or to pursue ministry. Maybe for something you need, it may be for something that you want to give to serve. Contact a person for ministry or to pursue ministry before and more than you post to the world in any platform, media form, newsfeed, or otherwise. You got a prayer need in your life before you put it on any social media feed. When you pick your phone up, text. And here's what I want you to ask. Do you know somebody you can send it to? within your community that God is using? Are they your first refuge to seek? If not, let's do some work on that. I'll give you some numbers you can call, that you can text, that you can email, and let's begin there. Depend upon the people that God has put around you. I'm not saying you shouldn't post it, but friends, I'd rather have one person that I know and that I am known by go before the throne of God for me than the countless number of people who will just scroll on by my prayer request and go, God help him, he said he needed it. Finally, train yourself and train your children in this time more than you shelter them from it. 
be careful not to hide reality from them and be vigilant not to let the world fill their mind and interpret the times for them. Immerse them in a community where people are pursuing Jesus in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, in the midst of calamity, and in the midst of uncertainty so that they see how others are finding joy are finding encouragement, finding strength, and are finding wisdom. And here's what you'll hear that little four or five-year-old say. Man, mama and daddy were having the worst week of their life when mama said this and daddy said that. And you're know, and you like, well, I don't think you ought to be telling that right now. But you know what? We went to church and somebody said this to them and I saw it change. I saw something different when we got home. The way they talked, the way they looked, the way they thought, the way we lived. So be it. The people of Christian maturity. That's who we are. Let's pray.